Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to remind everyone that our CMBH 12-week immersion program is open for fall application to anyone in Ontario. This is our popular medically integrated diet, exercise, and lifestyle program for people who struggle with their weight and metabolic health. Over the 12 weeks, you will get a physician's consultation and follow-up with a cardiometabolic health specialist. You'll get Dr. Appleton's empowered health report. You'll get a full review of your medical history, family history, and any medications you are currently taking, a system-by-system health assessment, including cardiovascular panel, lipids, kidneys, glucose metabolism, immune function, blood counts, and more. You'll get comprehensive lab tests, advanced diagnostics, and interpretation, prescriptions, if required, chronic disease risk assessment and management plan and medical management of any diagnosed conditions. Then you will also receive your very own health coach who will carry out Dr. Appleton's recommended plan. You will get diet, exercise and lifestyle coaching that can be done anywhere. You'll get support and accountability to keep you on track it is the full comprehensive package for people who want to take control of their health and change their lives the best part almost 70 percent of this program is covered by ohip for ontario residents and you do not need a physician's referral we will do the referral for you and it is all included if you're serious about taking care of your health please fill out the application form in the episode notes to see if you qualify or go to andrewappletonmd.ca that's all together one word andrewappletonmd.ca slash cmbh we hope to see you there Okay. Being recorded. We're live. Wonderful. You can <laughs> use this for your uh, world famous YouTube videos. Oh yeah, yeah. I think all uh, all sixteen subscribers will uh, will love it. Hey, you just need one. You just need one one video to blow up. <laughs> this will be the one for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe if um, you fall out of your chair and I don't know <laughs> something comes in through your window or something ridiculous i'll see what i yeah I'll so see what i can do to help you so obviously we're recording remotely because um tommy's got cooties yeah i mean it's pretty obvious by the sound of my voice <laughs> mm, i feel fine right now but that's because i've taken drugs to to make me feel okay and as we know okay. drugs are the best <laughs> they are <laughs> i can't remember the, this is one of my uh you know, the, one of the benefits of being married to a physician is uh, random sample packs of different types of drugs that end up in your house. So this is like I'm yeah. taking a uh, I'm taking like a migraine medication that's naproxen based, and uh, it's it's working wonders. You just right inject now. it straight into your <laughs> occipital lobe. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I assume they have like a, a treadmill of pharmaceutical agents coming in every day to provide lunch and samples. Yeah. Of yeah. course. How do you, this is, of course, not the topic of already derailed yeah. <laughs> of today's conversation, but how do you feel about uh, removing yourself from the situation of being a physician as best you can? How do you feel about uh, pharma, uh, pharmaceutical reps even being able to go in and pay for lunch and sit people down and talk about drugs? Is that not, is that not an obvious 
obvious conflict of interest. It's a total conflict of interest. Absolutely. I yeah, wonder why that, that is allowed. There, there's there's like reams of of data that show that even even something as innocuous as getting a branded pen given to you as a gift has like a psychological implanting effect that makes you more likely to discuss or even prescribe whatever the uh, the drug is that they're there to tell you about. But um, yeah, no, it's in, in academia, our policies are a little more strict. Uh, so we're definitely more insulated from it, though. If it, like if you want to have a, a sponsored journal club, you can for sure set that up. No problem. Um, though, by like university policy, <laughs> we, we used to actually have the drug reps would like, like join us for dinner, which was super awkward in a lot of cases. Uh, I don't think they're able to do that, but you could you know set up your own private uh, private dinner and just get it sponsored, I think would be fine in the community. Uh, sponsored lunches are very common. Um, people love it. You know, why not? You get lunch <laughs> and then somebody comes in and tells you about cutting edge drugs um, with no biased information whatsoever. Obviously that's facetious, but um, yeah, it's, it, it's interesting. Um, there's definitely an advantage to having a relationship with uh, with industry, especially when it comes to samples and getting access to medications for people who can't afford it, um, which is like the glaring gap in our public healthcare system, right? Is you know pharmaceuticals are not actually covered for everybody. So when somebody's in their forties or fifties, they don't have private insurance, but they need uh, an inhaler that costs one hundred and twenty dollars a piece then it's nice to be able to have a cupboard full of samples that you can just give to that person. Or in my case, I stock some freestyle Libra 2 continuous glucose monitors um, that I can give to people to help them learn about their blood sugar control um, in, in appropriate circumstances. So, you know, having that ability, I think, can enhance your clinical care as long as you're accepting of the fact that me having those samples certainly makes me probably more likely to be aware of and prescribe that uh, for patients who do have the appropriate coverage for it. Is that a problem? I don't know. That's where it gets into the gray zone. Yeah. It's just like, it's, it's just branding, right? It's branding yeah. like anything else where, mm -hmm. especially if you're a physician and in most cases, different brands of the same drug are essentially the same thing. So it's like whatever one you know of, or think of yep. is likely the one that you will that you will end up recommending to people just because it's the one that you can remember. Yeah, for sure. And like doses matter, right? Like if something's in five and 10 milligram dose increments, it's a lot easier to remember and prescribe than something that's in like 37 and a half and 75 milligram doses, like just simple things like that. Um, <laughs> just you know, make, make you more likely to remember one thing than another, where you train for sure has, uh, has an impact on it. Um, yeah, there's lots of interesting psychology to it, but mo I would say it's, it's less common that somebody's like, no, I prescribed this specifically because this is what the study showed. This is what was tested. It's not the class of medication. It's this specific medication that actually had the benefit. Right. Well, we are going to talk about drugs today. You want to continue to flog the dead horse of uh, semaglutide, yeah. Yeah, uh, Ozempic, as most people would know it, uh, who are listening to this episode, which we've, you know, we've 
touched on briefly just in passing in, in other episodes. But uh, as the drug becomes more popular, especially for weight loss, uh, even though it's not uh, in Canada, it's, it's not approved just for weight loss purposes. I'm sure that that day will come eventually, number one. And number two, people can, can find creative ways to, to get their hands on those drugs, even if they don't necessarily identically match the current criteria. Uh, I think you get the right doctor and you have the right conversation. You can probably get access to, to something like Ozempic as well. But it's a very, it, in, in the popular culture, it's, it's become a hot topic because it is so, so effective at helping people lose weight. So maybe you just want to start with like, what is the drug? What does it do? What is the mechanism of action? Like, how does it actually work to, to create such miraculous weight loss in, in, in people who get their hands on it? Uh, so Ozempic or semaglutide, it belongs to a class of medications called GLP-1 receptor agonists. So that's glucagon-like peptide uh, one which is a hormone peptide uh, that acts in our gut. So it's typically released from, uh, from the gut in response to food. And the, the two main effects that it has, one is on gut motility. So it actually slows down GI transit time uh, and gastric emptying. But then it also clearly has a central effect uh, where it's it's directly working on your central nervous system to suppress appetite. And it's the combination of those two things which results in people feeling full and like they just don't want to eat. And then that naturally leads to a reduced caloric intake, which then leads to, uh, to weight loss. It also works uh, at the level of the pancreas. So it will actually increase insulin secretion from your beta cells uh, to some extent. So, which is interesting because then it's sort of counterintuitive because we think of, well, in an insulin resistant state for people who are overweight uh, and have metabolic syndrome, their insulin levels are actually high. And we want to get those levels down because when your insulin levels are high, it's difficult to lose weight. So there's a bit of a paradoxical thing going on where you actually get some increased insulin secretion with the GLP-1s. Um, but that seems to actually come along with better glycemic control. So bringing your blood sugar levels down um, and making people feel better and obviously getting their uh, diabetes under much better control because diabetes is actually the indicated condition for treatment. Um, I think it's important to, to note there's a couple of like previous generation GLP-1s, uh, so the trade names Victoza and Trulicity, so Laraglutide and uh, Dulaglutide are the, um, the generic names for those. Um, so both also used to treat diabetes. They've been on the market for 10-ish years or even more. Um, what makes Ozempic different, even though it's the same sort of molecule, its half-life is much longer. And it's associated with a significantly greater weight loss. And so that is the thing that's made everybody in a frenzy because no, you want the weight loss. You want the you know 15 kilo weight loss as opposed to the five kilo weight loss that you had with the previous generation versions. So you talk about appetite suppression, uh, slowing in the digestive system. And I assume that's also 
kind of a form of appetite suppression if it's making food stick around longer and, and move more slowly. And yep. then uh, and then some effect by uh, with increased uh, insulin secretion. Now, are there gaps in fully understanding that mechanism of action? Because from what I've read, <clears throat> there's no real certainty in how it works, at least yep. how it works the way that it does. So can you talk a little bit about what is not quite known about how this drug works? Well, I definitely don't think all, all the mechanisms are are worked out. I think we we understand that the, the GLP-1, the GIP pathways pretty well and the enzymes that degrade that. Um, what, what I don't think we understand is why it slows down gastric motility so much, uh, and potentially too much in, in certain cases. And that's, well, when, when we talk about side effects, um, but I think what we definitely don't understand well is the central aspect of it. So the fact that you can take one small dose and people just feel full, and it's probably not having a significant GI effect right out of the gate. Uh, it's probably more mediated by the appetite control in your hypothalamic pathways. Um, so, you know, to, to my knowledge, anyway, that's not that's not really well understood, which so makes it we... concerning, right? Because it's it's a hormonal treatment. And the, it's always worrisome to me that you're sort of hijacking hormonal pathways and not fully understanding the short or long term ramifications of that. Yeah, this is, these are, when this is the scenario with certain drugs, this is what leads me and, and probably people like me to get concerned about what the motivations are for, for pushing the drug the way that it's pushed, because it's not fully understood. And of course, when you have a high magnitude of a desired effect, like weight loss, um, people, and by people, I mean whether it's government, the pharmaceutical companies, governing bodies, and the individual are going to take on more risk when the, the effect is stronger, right? When it's like, hey, I know there's a lot we don't know. I know that there's risks we are taking in distributing this drug, but look at what it's doing. Like, it seems like broadly, everyone is willing to allow more risk when it seems like there's at least more perceived reward. But it also it also makes you question when there's a conflict between safety and profitability, right? Because this is one of those drugs where, and we'll get into both the negative and some of the the po positive studies, uh, but it does appear that there's there's significant understood potential risk as well as the potential for who knows how much unanticipated, misunderstood risk. So can you speak, maybe this is more just your opinion than anything else, um, but how does a drug like this get on and stay on the market when there's so much that's not known about the potential downsides? And that's without even, without even considering what we actually know to be the downsides right now when we get into that. But let's assume that we don't know of any uh, any potential downsides, but there's, there's all of these unknowns of what, what this drug could also be doing. Well, I mean, to, to get on the market, you, you have to go through the regulatory steps and they're kind of parallel tracks in the U S and, and Canada. So you've got the FDA, the food and drug administration, uh, and then health Canada, uh, in Canada where 
uh, a pharmaceutical company who creates a new medication has to test that medication and then they have to apply to uh, one of those bodies to get approval to actually market that medication for a specific indication. So the burden of proof is is on the pharmaceutical industry who's creating that molecule, that product in the first place. And there's very sequential steps. Like you have to go through phase one, two, three studies in order to show, you know, first of all, that it's that it's tolerated. Second of all, that it actually, you know, has the pharmacokinetic properties that you think that it does in the lab. And then in phase three, you're actually testing like the clinical uh, outcomes of interest. So that would be, you know, diabetic control. Uh, if you're treating a diabetic population or reduction in cardiovascular events, if you're treating a high risk population, and if you're able to successfully show that, then you take that information to the FDA or Health Canada and go, look, this, this is it. This is the benefits. Um, these are the, you know, what we found in terms of side effects and safety signals. And then it's up to the regulatory authority you know, all thoughts and about potential outside influences and, and biases aside to make sure that they went through the rigorous scientific process and they think that this is going to be of societal benefit to offer to their citizens. Um, so I mean, that's how it comes onto the market. And then how something stays on the market is if it gets prescribed. And that's like a whole different thing right so it's how so it's how we how do you market it how do you make clinicians who can prescribe aware of it how do you make patients aware of it so they start asking their physicians about it and which makes the physicians then you know we we never like to know or to seem like we don't know what we're talking about so we go okay, a lot of people ask me about this i better actually educate myself and so you go and you you look at the at the data you look at you know gray zone literature that's out there. You talk to other physicians for anecdotal evidence about their experience with it. You go to conferences. So there's multiple different communication channels that we learn about. And if people start to have success with it, then, you know, you get the whole snowball effect. And then as we see with something like Ozempic, it's not actually the indication for which it was approved that it's now increasing in market share it's the fact that you lose a bunch of weight that was not the actual reason why it was brought onto the market but you know obviously the pharmaceutical companies are smart and go this is going to be great people are going to love this and they want the weight loss primarily and so people are going to continue to prescribe it for that reason and start to lose sight of the original reason why it was approved in the first place so just to take a step back i, I think this is important to to dive into a little bit because if we're talking about here's a drug that has a strong effect but also has some equally strong potential downsides when we talk about how a drug gets on the market it's all well and good to say well it passes you know all the it has to jump through all these rigorous health and safety hoops is it not the case that the majority of that information which approval is based on is almost unethically and unfairly controllable by the drug companies in one way or another. Like they are, they're actually running the studies and they gather the information. They have an opportunity to filter that information in one way or another, and then present it to the governing bodies that are responsible for approving or disapproving of these drugs. 
Well, for sure. I mean, these 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 studies for for drugs like this cost you know millions and millions of dollars to to run. So the only entities that have deep enough pockets to do those studies are the pharmaceutical companies themselves. Um, you can't you can't run studies like this on government funded grants that people are haggling over in in universities and colleges across North America. So yeah, for sure, it's 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 industry sponsored, and therefore the potential for bias is is huge. And is there cherry picking of data? Absolutely. Um, so yeah, I mean there the there's as many safeguards in place as as there are with enough hopefully unbiased people sitting on boards and having conversations about it and adjudicating things and. When they do those studies, they have to have you know blinded adjudicators who they usually hire from third party, um, third party entities like the Cleveland Clinic has a massive research organization, for example, which is under the academic umbrella, and they got contracted to actually run the trial, which means like the pharmaceutical company isn't running the trial; they're paying for the trial. So you know, conflicts of interest littered all over the place, obviously, but you know this this is the system that we have. So then let's talk about um, some of these studies, starting with with some of the research of concern and then talking about some of more of these positive studies that have come out suggesting uh, not just weight loss benefit, but additional, uh, you know, unanticipated benefits of, of the drug as well. So as far as I understand it, the, the big side effects of concern are number one, muscle wasting. Uh, number two, when you talk about gut motility, slowing down gut motility to the point of, of, of creating blockages. Um, and then what else is there on the, the current downsides that are popular? Cause I know in the UK, there was also, um, I think they ended the distribution, uh, because of concerns over suicidal tendencies, but I know that. I know the amount of instances that led to that, that shutdown was, you know, a handful of people, which is, doesn't mean it's not significant, but I think we're talking like less than five people who had reported uh, like suicidal ideation as a result of, well, not necessarily as a result, but uh, while taking the drug, um, what else is there that, that you are uh, reading about? Yeah, I hadn't hadn't actually heard the the suicidal ideation component. Um, so when when we prescribe any medication, you have to do an informed consent conversation with a patient. So for those of you listening who've ever been prescribed a drug, just you know keep this in mind for the type of conversation that was had with you and your provider before they uh, actually gave you the medication. Um, so part of that is, you know, here's why I think you you need this medication. Uh, here's the benefit that we hope to see from it uh, based on evidence. And, you know, we think that you're close enough to the population that it was studied in that it might work for you. And here's all the potential downsides. Are you okay with that? Do you have any questions? Do you want to proceed? Um, so for the GLP-1s, the major issues that you need to think about and counsel people on are the risk for medullary thyroid cancer. Uh, so patients uh, who have a family history of these sort of like endocrine uh, cancers, you need to know about that. Or if that person has had a history of thyroid cancer themselves, then that would be a no-go. Uh, anybody with a history of uh, pancreatitis, 
you need to think very carefully about it and you need to inform people that there's potentially an increased risk of uh, developing pancreatitis on medication. And there's also a known increased risk for uh, like gallstones and biliary disease. So those are sort of like the, the well-known stuff that we uh, always needed to inform people about rare, um, but noteworthy complications. And then there's the common yet not necessarily harmful complications. So almost everybody experiences some GI side effects, uh, especially when starting these medications. Uh, so just like nausea would be the most common thing. Uh, but then either constipation or diarrhea. Uh, so you, you never know what you're going to get. So that's always exciting. Um, so those would be the the other common things to sort of like, yeah, you can expect that you're going to experience uh, one of these things. Um, but over the dose ramping up phase, most people get used to it. Uh, and about 10 to 15% of people actually can't tolerate it due to GI side effects. Uh, and that's what the studies show us. In practice, it's probably uh, somewhere around the 10% mark. At least that's kind of what I've experienced in my practice. So those are that's the conversation that you're supposed to have. Now, post-marketing, uh, there's a few more case reports out there of more um, severe GI side effects, including you're talking about uh, blockage or bowel obstruction. It's not really a true bowel obstruction like... Um, like if your bowel kinked or if you had a mass that was obstructing your, your bowel, it's more like an ileus, which is a condition where your small bowel in particular basically just stops moving and you it kind of fills up with these air fluid levels. You get really bloated. It's very painful. Uh, and if it's bad enough, you either stop passing gas or stool uh, at all. Uh, or will result in, you know, projectile vomiting uh, out the other end. So it's really hard to know how many people that affects. Uh, I haven't, to my knowledge, seen that happen in my practice, either outpatient or inpatient. And the problem is with surveillance. So when these things go out into the market, there has to be a post-marketing surveillance system set up but reporting is voluntary. And we we ran into this with COVID vaccines, right? So, and that means that complications might occur, but because patients are typically on multiple medications, we can't say for sure that it was the medication that did it. Timing is an issue. Other things going on are an issue. So I would say the vast majority of potential adverse effects are probably not even reported at all. And then even if something is reported, there's no adjudication committee that actually looks at that case and does like a review of it to determine whether or not it was the medication. So that data is kind of junk data. So unless there's like enough cases that get reported that makes people concerned, and this actually did just happen. So the FDA has issued uh, a warning for semaglutide that there is an increased risk of having significant uh, GI side effects, including like an ileus. So that's important and hopefully leads to more rigorous, good quality data that will help us counsel patients appropriately. I would think that there's also an additional complexity there. If you're someone who weighs 350 pounds and you've spent the last decade trying to lose weight completely unsuccessfully, then you've taken this thing, you've lost 75 pounds in less than a year. Even if you have side effects that are 
considerably problematic. Are you going to bring that up and report it knowing that the thing that's given you this very clear reward is going to be potentially taken away from you as well? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And patient, patient psychology is interesting. So, you know, I've, I've got patients who they wouldn't dare stop a medication unless I gave them permission to, which is like, you don't need my permission to stop something that you think is making you feel terrible. Just stop taking it. Um, you tell me about it for sure, because there might be things that you hadn't thought of, uh, in terms of like weaning it off or whatever. Um, but, but then you've also got patients who will stop basically anything that you try to prescribe them. If there's like even the hint of a small side effect. So, and then you've got everybody in between. So it's, it's challenging to kind of wade through that, but I, yeah, your, your example is exactly right. So somebody might be willing to tolerate feeling absolutely horrendous and having bad complications um, because the one thing that they're looking for was the weight loss. That's a possibility in terms of the body composition, for sure. Um, I had a patient yesterday that I, that I spoke with and um, she specifically told me, you know, since being on Ozempic, I have no stomach for meat. Uh, I do not want to eat animal products, um, can't stand the sight or smell of fish. So basically all, all the good dense protein sources to help promote lean body mass development, she doesn't want anymore. So yeah, she'll probably lose weight on Ozempic, but is that good weight loss? Potentially not if she's just going to be wasting away lean body mass. Okay. So we have muscle wasting, we have GI issues, um, the European medical association issue, um, with suicidal ideation. I don't, I, I don't know how much there is there because you have to consider how many people in modern average population just have those sorts of yeah. psychological distresses. Um, is there anything else you can think of? Yeah, I can actually add another another interesting one that's come up uh, in my local practice. So one of one of the other things I do is um, I work in the perioperative program in London. So we see patients who are preparing for surgeries, uh, make sure that they're medically cleared and uh, inappropriate to go. Um, the anesthesiologists have come forward with a significant concern about uh, Ozempic and similar medications with retained gastric contents. So when you go for surgery, everybody's familiar with the fact that you have to fast before surgery, right? Because if they go to do a general anesthetic, which means you get a you get intubated with a breathing tube, you do not want food in your stomach because if you aspirate and that food comes up, then it could go down into your lungs and cause a significant problem. That's why you fast before surgery. So if you're taking a medication that slows down gastric motility, well, guess what happens? Potentially, you actually retain food in your stomach for longer, and you need to therefore fast for longer or stop taking that medication for potentially a longer period of time than we thought. So there are case reports of this. Again, I have no idea how common it is. Um, it's in the literature our anesthesiologists certainly are, are concerned about it. And in some cases, they're telling people to stop their Ozempic three weeks in advance of surgery uh, to just ensure that those GI motility effects are gone. We don't know what the right timing is. Um, it's a once weekly medication. So you actually don't have that many opportunities before surgery to hold it. And does holding it for an extended period of time potentially cause other issues like blood sugar management during an operation and after an operation? So there's there's a lot 
a lot to balance here. So this is, you know, other stuff that's coming up in the real world that's not anticipated uh, in studies. So before we talk about uh, some of the more recent literature talking about uh, additional potential benefits of, of Ozempic, uh, aside from, from the weight loss, knowing what you know with, with current side effects, with current negative side effects, as well as it at least appears that this list is, is growing to some degree, what is your general, what is your general thought on the medication? Uh, and for you, as, as far as your practice and, and circumstances when you would and would not prescribe that medication, how do you, how do you view that right now clinically? Um, I, I still think it's a useful treatment in the right circumstances. So the question is, what are those circumstances? And I, my opinion is we need to reserve treatments like this for patients where we can be fairly sure that the risk benefit ratio is in their favor. So we're talking about patients who have significant obesity with obesity related complications, uh, including diabetes, obstructive sleep apnea, arthritis, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, all of the things that increase your cardiovascular risk or in patients who already have established cardiovascular disease, like they've had a heart attack or they've had peripheral vascular disease that needed some sort of intervention. Um, that's the population who actually stands to benefit from this. And I would say is I'm willing to tolerate the level of risk associated with these medications a lot more acceptably uh, because they stand to actually gain more benefit from it rather than somebody who's, you know, just overweight, but doesn't have metabolic syndrome or diabetes or high blood pressure. Like there's, there's lots of people who their BMI is in, you know, the 30 to 35 range, but they actually don't have any obesity related complications as a result of it. Those people should not be treated with Ozempic. They should be treated with lifestyle measures and try to avoid medications. So as, as a physician, ethically, if you have two people who fall into that criteria where their obesity is a problem beyond just the shape and size of their body, so they're having clear negative effects uh, more systemically from, from their weight, one person has legitimately tried to the best of their ability to, to have a lifestyle-based intervention and is unsuccessful. That person, correct me if I'm wrong, you're likely going to prescribe that drug to, assuming there's no additional reason why you would not, correct? Uh, yeah, if they've got all the complications uh, noted and it's and refractory to uh, intensive lifestyle management, then they would be a candidate for medication, yes. And then person B, let's pretend they're in the exact same circumstances, has never tried any sort of lifestyle intervention from walking to changing any piece of their diet. And they say to you, I'm never doing that. <laughs> Just prescribe me the drug. Do you as a physician have the obligation to prescribe that person that drug under those circumstances? Do I have the obligation? Yes. No. Do, do Let me rephrase that. Do you feel like you would have a moral obligation to prescribe a person who is making it clear 
whatever you're going to ask me to do, I'm not doing. So let's skip all of this thing that you're trying to get me to do here and just give me the drug that's going to help me. How do you deal with that as a physician? Um, fortunately, I don't have to deal with that much. Most people are willing to at least do something. <laughs> or pretend. Yeah, for sure. Um, but it, it, yeah, I mean, and it, when you're doing medication treatment like that, it needs to be coupled with with lifestyle counseling and, and management. Uh, if somebody's just flat out refusing then I, I don't know. I think the conversation could go one of two ways. It's, you know, one is to say, look, if, if you're going to commit to a treatment, you know, lifestyle intervention is no different than, than medication intervention. So if we're going to commit to a medication, I need to know that you're going to actually adhere to that, uh, that strategy. And if you're telling me that you're not going to do that in for one potential strategy, which is lifestyle intervention, then why would that give me any confidence that you're actually going to take this as prescribed and adhere to it, which is potentially going to lead to more complications and something that I can't effectively monitor the benefit or of risk of. So I'm not actually very excited to treat that person or to prescribe that person something that I can't effectively monitor or determine success or failure. Well, this also brings up another you know, complex part of, of this drug and the relationship between the, the, the drug and the patients who take it is that if prescribed in any of these circumstances, it is allowing people who in the vast majority of cases are where they're at because of uh, a long series of, of poor decision-making lifestyle-wise. And I don't say that with any degree of judgment eating well and exercising is not an easy thing for, for any modern human being to do. And I get that, but you don't get to be 350 pounds because, you know, you're taking care of yourself. There's, especially when you think nutritionally, there's, there's gotta be an accumulation of, of, of poor food choices that are happening to get you there. And then you have enter this drug that allows you to get the results that somebody who made lifestyle corrections would potentially get in the long term. You can get those results, not just rapidly, but while still maintaining the very poor habits that led you to the state you were in, in the first place. Do you have any thoughts on that, on that sort of complication that, that people are getting results as if they are making lifestyle changes without changing anything in their, in their diet or exercise routine? Yeah, I have thoughts on it. Um, I mean, that's not, that's not actually how it was studied, right? So in, in all of the studies, um, the treatment arm included both medication and, uh, caloric reduction and, you know, lifestyle interventions with physical activity. So it really is meant to be in addition to other things that, that you're doing to effectively treat that. So if you're giving the drug only and changing nothing else, then you're not actually treating somebody how the studies show us that they should have been treated by protocol. And therefore I can't anticipate that the positive outcomes like the cardiovascular outcomes, for example, I'm actually going to see because I'm not doing everything that I'm supposed to be doing. So that's an issue. The other issue is sustainability. <clears throat> so we don't know, like we have to assume that these medications are supposed to be lifelong. 
because what we know what happens as soon as you take them away, people just regain weight. And so this is the conversation I would have with somebody was like, well, what's, what's your plan if you can't tolerate this or if you, like you don't have coverage for it a year, two years from now, what are you going to do? If you haven't changed anything else, your weight's just going to balloon back up to where it was before. So great. That's like, we achieved nothing. Yeah. It's, it's probably one of, one of my bigger concerns because I'm going to assume that this is going to make its way into a, into a weight loss market. And I'd be surprised if this stayed. Well, it, it already is. Yeah. But I mean, as far as being approved in Canada for weight loss, uh, not just weight loss, but also seeing the, the approval age drop down because we know yeah. that, yeah, we know like that kids, and, yeah. kids are getting heavier earlier and more significantly. And if there's something that they can take, that's going to change that. Uh, it's uh, assuming that these sorts of negative side effects slow down or seem to be controlled in some way, I would assume that this will eventually be approved for general weight loss and will be approved for younger and younger ages, which, you know, I'm always, I'm always, I always find myself trying not to be biased because of course, diet and exercise are routine for me. So sometimes it can seem less complex than it is for the average person. And I'm always looking for those sorts of interventions in my own children and in other people's children. Um, and, and part of what prompted this conversation is I'm very quick to post these negative studies that come out about Ozempic because I have a natural concern about it. Um, and someone responded to one of those posts with some of the positive studies that that we're going to talk about next saying like hey but what about this and my natural reaction was just to find a way to tear those studies down <laughs> and then i had to i had to stop and catch myself yeah. and be like if if this can be good even in a very specific small circumstance like i can't you can't be dismissive of that you have yeah. to acknowledge that this can be a good thing in these places. So even when it comes to kids, it's like if you're the 12-year-old kid and you've been, you know, you've been fat since you were a toddler for whatever reason. And I don't think there's a kid that doesn't desire to not be in that state, even just from the perspective of, you know, social perception and bullying. And if that kid can take something that even if there's a cost, it, it removes this burden from their life. You know, I like, I like to think that that's a bad thing, but, but ultimately is it. And for that individual child, is that a bad, yeah, that's not for my kids. <laughs> that's not the, uh, but my kids are not finding themselves in that circumstance. So is it for me to judge whether something is, is good or bad anyways? So perhaps now is a good time to move into some of these more recent studies that suggest not just uh, and perhaps perhaps I'm getting this wrong, but not just uh, positive cardiovascular outcomes, but just um, potential for 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 general uh, general longevity in, in demographics where there's multi disease uh, factors that, that, that they're at risk of. Yep. Um, well, I mean, the, the positive cardiovascular data goes back to when these things were approved in the first place. So like the, the other versions of the GLP ones that I mentioned, like they had 
positive cardiovascular um, outcomes in diabetic populations published, you know, more than a decade ago. So when anytime we refer to cardiovascular outcomes, there's sort of this basket called MACE, major adverse cardiac events, which is a combination of death from a cardiovascular cause, a heart attack, a stroke, or uh, peripheral arterial disease that requires you to do something about it, like a bypass or a stent. So we lump all those together in a, what's called a composite outcome. And those are that's usually the primary outcome in a, in a cardiovascular trial. So you randomize your groups, they've all got diabetes to be enrolled. Uh, and then you know, one group gets the drug, one group gets a placebo, and then you count up how many of these events occurred by the end of the trial. Um, so that's all great. I mean, all of these things have shown a positive benefit. The, the question is, how much of a benefit can we actually expect on a population basis? And it's typically between, so I like to talk in absolute numbers, not relative numbers. So most of the studies will use uh, hazard ratios or relative risk reduction as sort of their flagship findings. So they'll say like, you know, 24% relative risk reduction of having a heart attack, stroke, et cetera, with treatment. That sounds amazing. The absolute risk reduction is typically in the one to 2% range. Okay. So what does that actually mean in terms of reality? You convert that into something called a number needed to treat. So which is the number of people I need to actually give this prescription to for the duration of the trial to avoid a single event. So the number needed to treat for a one to 2% would be 50 to 100 people. Okay, so that means I need to you know, prescribe 100 people Ozempic for a year in order to avoid one heart attack. Compared right, so to the, compared to the comparison group. Compared to the placebo group, which is a high-risk diabetic population, et cetera. So what's the number needed to treat, though, to have a significant change in body weight? It's much lower than that. So, you know, it kind of depends on what, you, on what your outcomes are. So is there good cardiovascular data? Yes, absolutely. And it's, and it's within the realm uh, of all of the other you know, major landmark trials for cardiovascular uh, disease and all the different drugs that get used for that. So that's fine. Um, for diabetic control, we know that it reduces your hemoglobin A1C uh, typically by a percent or more, uh, typically more. Uh, so that's the percent number for uh, diabetes guidelines. We're trying to get that number down below 7%. You get diagnosed with diabetes with an A1C of six and a half percent. So for good control on medications, you want it below seven. A normal A1C is like, you know, 5.1 to 5.3% just for um, a relative thought. So there's that. We know it does uh, it is effective for sugar control. Uh, patients with diabetes often have kidney disease as well and protein leaking from their kidneys. So that's uh, diabetic nephropathy. It slows down progression of diabetic nephropathy as well. Um, and then along with weight loss, you also have the added benefit of better blood pressure control, <clears throat> better control of sleep apnea, uh, and a reduction in your uh, lipids or cholesterol levels. So all of the common risk factors that are associated with increased cardiovascular risk 
get better with weight loss and with these treatments, which is probably what's actually driving the reduction in cardiovascular events. So yeah, there's, there's lots of good stuff out there. And then if you think about patient reported outcomes, so this is when you subjectively ask somebody like, how do you feel? Is this improving your quality of life? Are you less short of breath? Um, then there's lots of, lots of positive data that comes from that as well. And, um, there's a lot more attention paid now to patient reported outcomes because we really want this sort of shared care decision-making model, uh, and how we can help patients understand what, like, what are you going to feel? Because most people don't, it's hard to wrap your head around. Well, you know, in a room of a hundred people, then you're one or two people less likely to have a heart attack. If you take this treatment, then you're like, okay, great. I, but I can't feel that. But what I can feel or what I can see is the number on the scale. And what I can feel is how short of breath and tired I am. So those things get better. And that, that is a much stronger signal to somebody that the medication is doing something than anything else. It's like, you know, why do people not take their blood pressure medication so often? Because you have no idea what your blood pressure is. And when you take your pills, you don't feel any different. So it's easy to forget. But where's yeah, this? It's, it's, you know, it's tangible. It's an injection. I do it once a week. I feel it. I get a little nauseous. So I know it's working. I eat less. My weight's coming down. This is good. So those additional positive outcomes, it doesn't sound to me like those are actual additional effects of the drug. It's that the drug is causing significant enough weight loss that you would expect those other changes. So my question to you is, are those outcomes uh, from the drug greater than you would expect to see through lifestyle intervention that, that results in the same? So obviously it's way easier from a behavior change standpoint to take a drug and lose the weight. But let's assume that that a certain percentage of people are capable of losing the weight through natural lifestyle interventions like diet and exercise. And you might not have an answer here, but if 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 someone let's just you know pretend here, if someone loses a hundred pounds as a result of of taking something like Ozempic, or they lose a hundred pounds by changing their diet and exercise, are you expecting to see even more significant positive outcomes of the type we're talking about right now? with the lifestyle intervention group, or are the, the drug intervention group, uh, is their outcomes positive enough where it's, it's essentially the same? Uh, so none of the studies would actually tell us that <clears throat> you would need a different trial design, uh, which would actually control for the degree of weight loss in both arms of the study. So if you had, like, if you compared directly, like if you had three arms, placebo, uh, and then uh, Ozempic alone, and then Ozempic plus, or, or sorry, placebo plus intensive uh, lifestyle intervention aimed at weight loss. And then I guess a fourth arm that was Ozempic plus intensive lifestyle intervention, then you would actually be able to determine, you know, once I control for the degree of weight loss, whether or not there's a drug effect in addition to just what's weight mediated. Um, Kind of all that is to say that in my personal experience, uh, I think it's mostly weight mediated and that when people lose a significant amount of weight, they feel a heck of a lot better. Their metabolic parameters improve. 
Um, a lot of that has to do with the diet quality changing, but also caloric reduction and the weight loss associated with it. So like if I gave someone Ozempic and they didn't lose an ounce of weight, would I expect to see their metabolic numbers improve with the exception of blood sugar? No. So I wouldn't expect there to be a difference in cholesterol. wouldn't expect there to be a difference in blood pressure, kidney function, anything else if they didn't lose weight. So I think most of it is weight mediated, which you can achieve by other means. Yeah, there must be, I assume there must be existing lifestyle intervention studies related to cardiovascular outcomes Absolutely. alongside weight loss. So there, there, I'm sure there's a way to do uh, a crude comparison of, of study versus study. I don't expect you to, to have those numbers off the top of your head, but it would be interesting to look at the magnitude of result for those secondary outcomes from something like Ozempic versus other studies that have been done on heart health through natural lifestyle intervention where, where weight loss, because I'm going to assume if, if you comparatively do pound for pound between those two groups, the person who, who got there through diet and exercise probably has a lot more positive uh, outcomes. I, I don't know that. I'm yeah, for sure. I think the, the issue, there are exceptions to this, but the issue with um, lifestyle intervention studies is most of them are not done in a very high risk population. Right. So they're done, they're done for weight loss and they're, they're done for specific conditions for sure. Um, and there are exceptions, but the, there aren't an, like thousands and thousands of patients in lifestyle intervention trials with high risk, with diabetes, where you would be able to do a well-controlled apples to apples comparison like that. So that there'd be a, a ton of extrapolating, um, but just experientially, uh, Certainly, I think the the benefit that you stand to gain is uh, is significant through lifestyle intervention alone. As long as you've got a good plan, can adhere to it, and it's and it's successful, and uh, we certainly don't do that well enough. So while while we're wrapping up here, what are your general thoughts on the medication when you understand that really the effect is coming from preventing a person from eating? right? It's, it's yeah. appetite suppression. Yeah. It's changes in it's, it's changes in digestion that make food less appealing to eat. Um, it, aside from the issues of, of things like muscle wasting, um, which again is, is probably also because I I'm willing to bet that if someone was on a resistance training program alongside this drug, it would probably do a lot to help retain some of that, that muscle wasting, but for sure. But most of these people aren't changing anything because they don't need to, to get the, the goal that they want. So, you know, Peter Atita, uh, Peter Atita anecdotally talked about, you know, in his clinic, he's seen people where up to 50% of the weight that they're losing is, uh, is muscle mass or, or non-fat mass, yeah. uh, which, you know, he, he, he said based off of that, you know, if, if unless you're 50% body fat, you're essentially, you know, you're essentially wasting uh, in a way that that there's there's a clear disadvantage to. But even with all that stuff aside, even just understanding that the mechanism of action that makes drugs successful is it's just like it's an eating disorder in a pill, essentially. You know, that you may you may not exactly agree with that terminology, but to me, it's it's giving someone that you take a pill and you get an eating disorder, and that eating disorder leads leads to weight loss. And 
I, well, these it's, are the it's similar. It's yeah. basically the medical version of bariatric surgery. Right. Right. So bariatric surgery, there's different versions, but the most common one is the Ruan Y gastric bypass, where you literally replumb the stomach and small bowel so that you have very little stomach that food can actually fit in. And then you bypass a large portion of the first part of the small bowel. And, you know, because of that, people have zero appetite because you can only fit so much food in your tiny little stomach after it's been bypassed. Um, so you've done, we've done that by mechanical means. And we know that the weight loss associated with that is very significant, uh, it, more than the medication options we have now, though now with the triple uh, agonist therapies that are coming down the pipe, it's probably sort of, you know, very similar degree of weight loss and, and metabolic effects. So bariatric surgery, we, we save for like the most refractory cases, patients who who've got um, diabetes and tons of complications, because this it's a life changing surgery, both in good and potentially negative ways, because there are many, many downstream negative effects, like with malabsorption and micronutrient loss and all kinds of stuff that comes up you know, five to 10 years after that surgery. And, uh, and the follow-up in beyond that period of time is abysmal. So we see a lot of patients who've had their gastric bypass 10 years ago and now come in and they're like terribly anemic. They need iron infusions. They've got no uh, zinc. They've got no vitamin D they've got, you know, just they literally can't absorb these things. And, you know, is that a good thing that we're doing to people that's irreversible? Ah, it like creates a whole, a whole other conversation. But I think medications like semaglutide need to be thought of in that, in that same way. It's like, if we're going to do this, like this is, it's a big deal and it, and it takes a really properly informed conversation and the right context to know that somebody's going to, to benefit from it. So my last question would be, because most, most people who are going to be very interested in, in this drug are not the severely overweight, metabolically diseased population. It's going to be the average person who's a little to a lot overweight and has made some attempts at, at, at natural intervention in the past and has found themselves unsuccessful and they see this thing that might deliver what they've always wanted in a way that, that it's actually effective. Um, what do you say to that person about this drug? Uh, I typically advise them that it's not, it's not the right thing to think about that. They probably need to think about alternative strategies for lifestyle management, have a good plan in place and give it enough time and don't look for an overnight fix because and it, it take you however old you are it took you that many years to get to where you are now we can't just flip a switch and change all of that overnight you need to think about how do i come up with a sustainable effective solution that i can maintain for the rest of my life or that i can adapt to fit the needs as i age and the level of function that i want to have and everything else so I, I dissuade a lot of people um, from, from thinking about just using medication for weight loss. 
And I think it's also important for people to identify if their desire is more driven, driven by vanity or if it's driven by actual health concerns. <clears throat> and that's not a judgment. Again, like everyone has their own sense of vanity and everybody wants yeah. to look and feel a certain way. And, and I, I completely understand that. But you, what's the cost, right? So if it's if you feel pretty good and you're not really worried about you know, lifestyle driven disease, but you just don't like the way that you look. And based off of that, you don't feel good because you don't feel like you look good and you have confidence issues and, and all of that. It's like, well, what price are you willing to pay to lose some weight that way? Because there chances are there is going to be a cost. And if the cost ends up being disease or problems that, that, that are, that might as well be disease when that day comes, is it going to be worth it to you? at that point, just to, to, to look and feel a little bit better, uh, you know, and, in the most. And you also sense. need to be willing to pay the three to 400 bucks a month that it's going to cost to get that medication, because if that's your indication for it, you shouldn't be getting insurance coverage. Yeah. It's a, it's funny you bring that up because, uh, you know, the, my gym's not necessarily the cheapest gym you can go to. So if people are going to spend, you know, 160 bucks to 200 bucks a month to go there, and it's like, what? It's how much? Yeah. But Ozempic, question, 400 bucks? Yeah, no problem. Precisely. The question yeah. I always ask is, well, what else do you spend that money on? Yeah. Like, think of all the other crap you spend yeah. 150 to 200 bucks a month on. Is it really that much money? Yeah. And of course, if it was like, well, here's this thing you can take that's going to help you lose weight. You don't have yeah. to do anything aside from take it. People pay 10 grand a month for that if, yeah. if they have the means. Like how much, yeah, how much do you spend on food in a month? It's crazy. And how much did you pay for your car? Which you probably could have paid half and it's still going to get you for me to pay for gas now. (laughs) Yeah. You pay triple that in gas. So, so many things like that, but yeah, financial psychology like that is interesting. It's value psychology. It's uh, more than anything else, right? It's just, here's a thing that I want, but it's not really at the top of my hierarchy of priorities. Because it's not only the membership that you pay, it's like, then you actually got to come in and do the work. (laughs) Yeah, otherwise it is a complete waste of money, which is, you know, how how you kind of try and frame it to people is, you know, what decision do you actually want to make here? Anyhow, is there anything you want to say in closing here? Uh, I don't think so, other than, I don't know if we... uh totally blew our option for uh getting sponsorship by uh nova nordis but uh, well hey they're they're doing well i don't think they require i think they're okay yeah. <laughs> <laughs> by the look of their stock over the past three years they're doing just fine absolutely all right yeah that's all content provided on this podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute the providing of medical advice and is not intended to be a substitute for independent professional medical judgment, advice, diagnosis, or treatment. I mean, clearly not when I'm speaking. I'm not a doctor, but that goes for the real doctor, Dr. Appleton as well. You should always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions or concerns you may have regarding your health. You should never disregard or delay seeking medical advice relating to treatment or standard of care because of information contained in or transmitted, huh? transmitted? Yes, information contained in or transmitted in 
this podcast.